Move Forward Radio is brought to you by ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. Amanda Olson sustained a frightening injury while on a camping trip in 2008 that left her unable to sit down for months. She laughs about it now, but then laughter comes readily to a woman whose misfortune, in a crazy twist, led to a career she loves, helping others overcome, anticipate, and prevent pelvic floor dysfunction. Humor is important, she'll tell you, because the statistics alone could make you cry, with one study estimating that more than a third of women worldwide have some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. For female athletes like runners, the percentage may be even higher. Amanda, a runner herself, who's completed marathons in the years since her recovery, talks in this episode about the transformative physical therapy she received for her injuries. Drawing on the pelvic health training she underwent and the certification she earned, she talks about the many causes and effects of problems of the pelvic floor muscles and what runners or anyone should know, including women during and after pregnancy. She's got plenty of advice for guys, too, and she shares what she's learned about the science of pain and how to address and lessen it. Amanda says comic relief is among her core values. How does she get her patients smiling? And why does she feel so strongly that sometimes you've just got to laugh? She shares all that and more. Here's our conversation with Amanda. So, uh, Amanda, uh, thanks for joining us on Move Forward Radio. You're a physical therapist who specializes in treating pelvic floor disorders. And, in fact, you sustained a serious injury ser- several years ago that uh, led you to this particular area of practice. Uh, I'm going to want to talk with you about that uh, in a minute. But, but first of all, uh, why don't you start by ta- talking about what the pelvic floor is, what the muscles it encompasses, and, and the functions of everyday living that are Im- impacted by the pelvic floor? The pelvic floor muscles are a group of muscles at the base of the pelvic girdle itself, so what you kind of feel when you put your hands on your hips. And they behave just like any other muscles in the body. So they contract, they relax, they can be strong, they can be weak, they can be too tight. Um, But ultimately, all of our pelvic organs rest on these muscles, including the bladder and the rectum in both males and females, and then in females, additionally, supporting the vaginal canal and the uterus. So they're really important because they can help regulate things like urination and bowel movements, and then also they are important for sexual functioning. So when they're behaving well, we don't really think about them or most people don't even know that they're there. And Mm -hmm. when they are not behaving, ultimately, we can have some pretty serious problems, including incontinence and including also pain in that region that can be really devastating to people. So, uh, so that, that gives us a, a sort of a, a segue to my next question, which was going to be what, when we talk about dysfunction of the pelvic floor muscles, the, the kinds of things that are, are going on, what, what are some signs and symptoms of pelvic floor issues that may need to be addressed? The most common one would be issues with the urinary system. So that would be accidental loss of urine. Um, so maybe you leak a few drops or a few tablespoons or maybe wet your clothing when you cough or sneeze or laugh. Um, In women, it can be a sign of pressure in the pelvis, um, which is what we call pelvic organ prolapse when the the organs in the pelvis sink down into the vaginal canal, and it can be very distressing. 
Also constipation. So if the pelvic floor muscles are too tight, people can experience a functional form of constipation. Pain in the, in the tailbone area or pain when you try to urinate or sit or try to engage in sexual intercourse. Those are all really prominent signs that the pelvic floor muscles may benefit from some rehabilitation. Well, to, to be clear, um, in, in, in your practice uh, and, and in general, uh, uh, many of the conditions associated with the pelvic floor health uh, primarily, and in some cases, like regarding pregnancy, Im- impact women solely, but, but men are impacted too. Can you talk about that? So men can experience urinary incontinence for various reasons. One of the biggest reasons would be following a prostatectomy. So after Mm -hmm. prostate cancer, um, when there's uh, surgical removal of the prostate, they have a a loss of stability around the urethra, and they can experience urinary incontinence. And additionally, men can also experience pelvic pain because these muscles, again, can be too tight or overactive, or they they can be not coordinated in the manner that we'd expect them to. And so for this reason, men can experience pain in their tailbone or around their genitals, um, and that can really get in the way of their ability to participate in work and um, in all the things that they want to. Well, um, I recently read some some rather eye-opening statistics. Um, A study cited in the International Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology estimates that more than 35% of women have some form of uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. And and a Runner's World uh, magazine uh, article said that the percentage may be even higher in female runners. So why is that? What what sorts of factors contribute to those, those kinds of startling numbers? Interestingly enough, the data behind runners with incontinence, particularly females, is closer to 90% in many studies. So it's very high prevalence. So, you know, when we think about pregnancy and we think about how the body changes with hormones and um, our our ligaments naturally become more uh, relaxed. And so that all of those changes in the weight of the baby sitting right above the pelvic floor muscles causes them to elongate. And in many times, it causes them to be a little bit weaker than we're used to them being. And then particularly with vaginal delivery, there's an opportunity for injury to the muscles, um, as is commonly seen if there's a episiotomy or tearing during the uh, delivery process. And you can think of it like your rotator cuff. If you tore your rotator cuff, um, the shoulder would be painful. It would not function normally, and you'd have to re-strengthen the muscles in that area of the body. And, and likewise, that's what happens when there's injury to the pelvic floor muscles, whether it's from pregnancy or otherwise. So it's not uncommon for women to experience incontinence after delivery, even if they had a C-section. And that rate goes up for every child they have. <laughs> so that wow. 35% is closer to 50% with two children and on and on subsequently for deliveries. And then in runners, when we think about the fact that when a runner's foot strikes the ground, they're oftentimes experiencing upwards of two and a half times their body weight that resonates in through their pelvis. And the body needs to be able to attenuate those ground reaction forces. And the pelvic floor needs to be not only strong, but mobile. And a lot of times with uh, running and other types of impact activity, that repeated stress if if they don't have good running form or if they are not using optimal breathing mechanics and they don't have really good reactions, that can result in incontinence. So it's not that running's bad or that all runners experience it. It can just be a perfect storm of 
the way the runner is moving their form and other factors pertaining to their body that can result in, in urination and um, extrapolating that to other sports like volleyball or tennis, where there's a powerful contact moment with a ball. Like say, imagine you're going to hit a tennis ball. Oftentimes that causes a very fast increase in the pressure inside the abdomen and the pelvic floor needs to have a very rapid and coordinated response to that pressure so that leakage does not occur. Well, and I want to talk to with you in a little bit uh, at considerably greater length about how to prevent and, and address those types of issues that you've been talking about. But I want to step back for a second and, and, and talk about you, um, your particular background. You began your career as a physical therapist in pediatric physical therapy, but you switched to your current specialty as a result of a, a rather traumatic accident that you had and, and the care that you received afterward. Um, uh, Amanda, can you take us back to 2008 and talk about what happened to you? Absolutely. Yes, I had just finished my doctorate degree in physical therapy, and I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and very passionate about helping children. I was actually working in the children's hospital in my area, and I was out in nature. I live in Oregon. It's very, very beautiful here. We have beautiful rivers, and I uh, was with my husband and a group of other adults, and we were I, – I, I joke. It's not a laughing manner, but I have a really good sense of humor about it because that's just how I am, but uh, we were stone-cold sober. And I had a doctorate degree, so I was smart enough to know better. Yeah. But <laughs> apparently young enough to still make the choice to try to keep up with the boys who were jumping off of the cliff um, at 40 feet into the water. And uh -huh. apparently when you jump at that height, uh, water is like concrete, and you're supposed to land with your feet straight. So you're supposed to enter the water in a straight line. Mm -hmm. I was unaware of these uh, unspoken rules of jumping off cliffs. And I landed in the seated position, and I significantly injured everything in my bottom down to my legs and including my spine. It's one of these things that looking back as an adult, this was 12 years ago now. I'm lucky that I'm alive. I'm lucky that I didn't seriously injure my spinal cord. And the ramifications were such that this could have been much, much worse than it was. But I did dislocate my tailbone. Um, I injured all the muscles of my pelvic floor because my bottom was the first thing to make contact. As you can imagine, dropping mm. into the water in the seated position, that was the point of entry. Um, I injured my spine, but I was able to walk out of it. But I immediately had to go see my physician who immediately the first line of defense after, you know, determining that the rest of me was intact was to go see a pelvic health physical therapist. And at that time, 12 years ago, there was only a couple hundred in the country. This was not a very popular form of physical therapy. People didn't know what it was. I was really grateful to know what it was because I, I had received a three-hour lecture in my whole three-year doctorate <laughs> physical therapy program. We had a three-hour talk on what this was. So, I, you know, I, I knew that I, was, I had to do what it took, and I had extensive internal work performed by my pelvic health physical therapist, and she helped me completely heal. I mean, I, I have gone on to run marathons. I've gone on to have two boys. Um, I've had two babies naturally, and I am fine for all intents and purposes. And she really changed my life, and she changed the way that I see my practice. And at the end, and she had a really great sense of humor, too, and she said, Amanda, you need to quit peds. You need to do this 
you have the right personality for it. There's not enough of us in this country doing mm-hmm. this. You, you need to do this now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it took a year, and I did. I was still working full-time and taking the additional coursework that's required because it is extensive and completely different training than we receive in typical physical therapy curriculum. Um, but I went on. I'm certified, and it's, you know, this is my whole new purpose in my career is to address these issues. Well, I don't mean to make you, uh, you know, literally revisit a painful time in your life, but but uh, just when you were talking about landing in a seated position, I mean that that sounded painful just to hear it. Can you can you talk about sort of what you were what you were even able to do immediately afterward and sort of uh, draw a fine line on the path or what you had to come from to get to where you are now? Yeah, I was unable to sit at all. Um, you know, being in the car like in order to get to the car just I, I was like in some weird L side seated position. I couldn't <laughs> rest my bottom on anything. I slept on my side or on my stomach, which is really bad for your spine. But um, and interestingly, um, I started my career in a research position in pediatrics. I was still working with children, but um, a lot of my work in research was obviously sitting at a desk, and mm. I wasn't able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> And so I, I had significant amounts of pain, wasn't able to sit, wasn't able to be with my husband. Um, the color of purple that the backside of me was, was indescribable. <laughs> there was, I mean, that, there was just significant vascular and nerve damage. Um, so when you, hear the na- when you hear the name of a certain Alice Walker book, it has an entirely different meaning to you. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and you know, purple eventually becomes green, which becomes yellow. (laughs) It was a rainbow. (laughs) But um, the name of the game was pain, essentially, and um, it's really interesting because, I mean, that was a humbling moment because I made a choice, and it was a bad choice. But going on to have two boys naturally, two, two babies naturally, I, again, experienced pelvic floor dysfunction, but this time, you know, I was already certified as a pelvic health specialist, Mm -hmm. and I kind of knew what to expect from childbirth and delivery, but I experienced the other side of the spectrum with, you know, with, with delivery injuries, I was experiencing some of the incontinence, definitely had some pelvic organ prolapse, and it was a whole new set of issues to conquer, and I did because I knew what I was doing, but so many women and men after cancer and after different surgeries don't even know that this is available. And I think it's mm-hmm. become a thing. Um, it, we're, we're as pelvic specialists working to eradicate this, but they think because it's common and everyone's doing it, that it's just normal. Well, you had children. This is what happens to you. Change, you know, you, you no longer will be on the trampoline. No more CrossFit for you. You can't jump rope anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and these kinds of things. But all of those issues are fixable. And I have been the patient on the table for, for all of those circumstances. I've had so many opportunities to learn mm-hmm. and be on the other end of things. Mm-hmm. So I can appreciate how it feels, and I know that it's not easy, but it's still worth it. Well, you you mentioned the fact that you well, one of the reasons that you became a, a pelvic health uh, physical therapist was was because it was impressed upon you that there was a a lack of them. It's twelve years later now. What what do the numbers look like now? Oh my goodness, it is a brand new planet in pelvic health rehabilitation. Um, So I would say, so when I first started my training, there was probably three level one pelvic curriculums offered per year. So that would be, you know, when you're starting to get into pelvic health, um, there were three per year offered. There was probably 30 students 
in the class. So let's say we have 90 new people learning how to do this. In 2020, we have probably 10 to 15 offerings of level one between different institutes of pelvic health. They have, you know, roughly 35 students each. So it is exponentially more. And with the new modes of social media available, a lot of new uh, millennial pelvic health therapists are using their social media channels to help spread knowledge and awareness. And so we are being able to reach patients in a totally different way, encouraging Mm -hmm. them to come in and get the treatment that they need. A quick break to encourage you to move. Physical activity is associated with a reduced risk of chronic disease, not to mention improved bone health, cognitive function, weight control, and overall quality of life. Simply put, more movement is the gateway to better health. Need some help to get going? Physical therapists are movement experts who use exercise, hands-on care, and patient education to help you meet your goals. You can contact a PT directly for an evaluation. Learn more and find a physical therapist near you at choosept.com. You referenced earlier that uh, you're you're able to do a a whole lot of things that you might not have imagined uh, after that injury you would be able to do, including running marathons. One of your your loves in life is is running, and and a big emphasis in your career has been on treatment of runners with uh, pelvic floor dysfunction. Uh, What sorts of pelvic floor issues do, do runners, and particularly female runners, tend to have? And you kind of alluded to this earlier. So two of the most common things would be leaking of urine, and that can be in the, um, a, a woman that has never had children or that has had children, and can, we can associate some of those changes of the pelvic floor with the pregnancy and delivery process. But leaking of urine is one. Um, and then some pelvic and hip and groin-related pain um, that all kind of attenuates in that pelvic girdle area. And that's where kind of the sleuthing of determining the driving factor of the pain includes analyzing the pelvic floor and doing a thorough and proper evaluation and also comparing it to running mechanics and running gait because a lot of issues that happen in the hip and in the pelvis. And those are two very related areas because Mm -hmm. they share, they share muscles and nerves. Um, But it's really important to address underlying orthopedic issues in that area because all of those, all of those things can impact pelvic floor functioning. So it can go both ways. Pelvic floor issues can drive issues with running and running impairments and, and gait issues can drive pelvic floor dysfunction as well. Well, as you suggested before, I mean, just the the whole the whole uh, uh, when you look at a runner and, and you just and you see the way that uh, the weight on pounding the pavement and the and the pressure that that puts on on the body, um, are there ways to reduce the potential uh, toll on the pelvic floor muscles in in terms of uh, both preparation to run and proper form while running? Yeah, absolutely. Um, pertaining to, as you mentioned, when we look at a runner and, and if we look at it from the per- perspective of the way they run or their, their mechanics or their biomechanics, as we referred to it, um, a couple of factors can really feed into overall performance, but particularly protecting the pelvic floor. And one of them is avoiding overstriding. So a big, um, a big factor of placing the foot too far in front of the body when they're running results in a lot of ground reaction forces a lot more than they would experience if they place the foot a little closer to their center of mass or to their body. Um, And so oftentimes what happens is if the foot is placed too far in front of the body, the limb is very stiff, first of all, so we don't have good 
spring in through the knee and in through the hip to be able to accept that weight. And two, it has, it, it changes how they have to then move their body back over that limb. And um, it requires a lot of strength. And a lot of us do not have that with our, our daily life of working and doing other things. So overstriding is one um, and avoiding too much bounce up and down. So um, avoiding uh, going too far up into the air instead of moving forward. And then the third biggest thing is how we control our body when we are weight bearing. So when we are in the stance phase of running, when we have a foot on the ground, how strong are we in our foot and in our hip and into our pelvic floor and abdominals and core musculature so that we can have a nice strong line that is Mm -hmm. very dynamic and propulsive versus when we accept weight and we kind of succumb to gravity. If you can imagine kind of, accepting weight and kind of crumpling into it before creating that propulsion moment. How how good are you at following your own advice when you're running? I have become better because I am in my late 30s now and I have come to understand I've been a runner since I was a very young person since I was about 10 years old and I've come to accept that if I want to continue to do this thing that I love I had best be working hard to maintain my core strength and foot strength and mobility and doing all these things in service of this thing that I love but Um, One thing that I recognize, too, is that I used to race and I used to, even as an adult and a professional, have very intense goals surrounding my running. And now later in life with career and children and family and a business to run and all these other things, I accept that I'm in a phase now where I just want to run healthy. And so if I want to do that, I need to be following my own advice and mm-hmm, things that I know to do or I'm going to crash and burn and I'm not going to have running. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you run while you were pregnant and and is it uh, uh I mean, I assume it's safe to do so if you if you take certain precautions? You got it. Yeah, so interestingly, it's a tale of two pregnancies and it all comes down to the the pregnancy that you're in. And so, for example, um, the first thing that's necessary is clearance from the birth provider. So my obstetrician recognized that on my first pregnancy coming in, I was coming out of, you know, being a pretty competitive runner. Right. Um, and I had a safe pregnancy. And he said, you run as far and as long as you want to. So, I mean, literally, I ran a marathon in my first trimester. I had a second place half marathon finish <laughs> in my first trimester. And I, I ran all the way through my third with my first child. It's too bad they don't have a category for pregnant women, you know. You, you, exactly. You, you... <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should have our own. And, and I felt good. And then on the second pregnancy, I was prohibited from... From doing any form of exercise. I had some complications with that particular pregnancy and the way that uh, my baby was sitting. Mm-hmm. And um, I was not permitted to do anything, not yoga, not go for a walk, nothing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you just abide by what the physician says. So I was grateful to have a healthy baby boy and I missed it and it drove me nuts that I couldn't do any form of exercise because that was one of my coping mechanisms. And, you know, it's one of those healthy things that we do to, to maintain overall cardiovascular health and strength, but made it through. And then after I delivered that second baby, rehabilitated and then I was good to go again and I was Mm -hmm. able to go back to running and doing all the fun things so Mm. I always tell people though even if you've been cleared and it's safe still do what feels best on your body because there are a lot of changes in the feet there are a lot of changes in the pelvis and sometimes we get this idea in our head of what we should be doing versus what actually feels good on our body and it's really important to listen to your body Mm mm-hmm 
Uh, Amanda, what what are the keys to uh, to returning safely to running uh, postpartum? So we actually are very um, lucky to have brand new protocols that have been released in 2019. That are um, they were created by three. Uh, physiotherapists, three physical therapists from around the world, two of which are women's health specialists and one of which is a running specialist. And they gathered the data that we'd all been kind of aware of. So when these came out, it kind of put some numbers behind, I think, what many of us were intuitively following with our patients in terms of preparing them. But essentially what we're recognizing is um, this new concept of a fourth trimester, wherein The body that you have immediately after delivery is a body that is still healing. It is still experiencing changes in hormones. It is a very exhausted and fatigable body. And it's going to feel different. It's going to require some some patience and some adaptations in order to get you back to doing the things that you want to do. And so the new recommendations are for no impact for at least the first three months after delivery. And the reason behind this is because we're recognizing that hormones have led to increased joint mobility and weakening of key and pertinent muscles, and that in order to prevent some very serious side effects of worsening of incontinence symptoms or pelvic organ prolapse, that it's going to take some very deliberate and one-on-one care from a pelvic physical therapist to strengthen the pelvic floor, get this speed and timing and coordination back, And also progressively and gently go from the state of having delivered to being able to, again, accept 2.5 times your body Mm -hmm. weight in that Mm -hmm. running gait. So they're recommending a very deliberate progression in pelvic floor strength, balance, hip stability. They're recommending that we really be precise about examining a patient for pelvic organ prolapse and stabilizing it accordingly. So this notion where... The pelvic organs have dropped into the vaginal canal in really progressive phases that can be pretty injurious to some of the ligaments surrounding it. And it can require the use of a pessary or some other device. And that's totally fine. And we can help partner with a physician or a nurse practitioner to help get them stabilized so that when they're running, they're not experiencing that drag on their pelvic floor. Is it fair? It sounds like from, from what you're saying, it's it's probably fair to say that, that you would recommend that uh, that that uh, any 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 woman, pregnant or not, or or any man probably would it would be it would be advisable to to consult with a with a pelvic health physical therapist. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's so much evidence to support the one-on-one approach of working with a pelvic physical therapist that can help you go from where you currently are to meeting your goal and ensuring too that there's no other underlying factors that are being missed because it's not enough to just say well just do kegels everything will be fine (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know there's there's so many other factors involved with it surrounding posture and stabilization of joints and and this is these are all services that we as physical therapists provide and also meeting the person where they are. So there's there's factors in a household and schedule that we can help uh, a new mom or a mom that's adding another child to her family to mitigate as they're going through this process. Mm-hmm. Amanda, earlier you, you mentioned uh, you, you mentioned leakage. Are, are, are there other signs that a runner might have a pelvic floor related uh, issue that means it's it's sort of time to take a break and and maybe uh, get a get a consult from a from a pelvic floor physical therapist? 
Yeah, outside of leakage, and the leakage could be urinary or fecal. Um, there, is, there is an opportunity for um, leakage of bowel um, surrounding some forms of pelvic floor weakness or injury. Especially, I like how you put that, an opportunity. An opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, we would create a positive opportunity for growth and change around <laughs> Um but also a sense of pressure um, in the in the in the pelvis while running, um, and then groin pain, pain around the pubic bone itself, uh, tailbone pain, and then some forms of hip pain too. It's really interesting. The pelvic floor muscles share a fascial connection, or kind of like a tent wall. If you can imagine close neighbors with just a tent wall to the hip muscles. And so oftentimes we see patients that have kind of this ongoing underlying hip pain, um, and it often involves the pelvic floor itself. So we see this in femoral acetabular impingement, patients with chronic IT band, you know, where they foam roll it out or they, you know, do, they stretch and they stretch and they stretch, but they just can't seem to resolve it. Sometimes that is associated with different forms of pelvic floor issues, whether it's um, that the muscles are too tight and it's creating an imbalance between the right and the left, or whether it's um, something happening within the gait cycle. You know, we know that when the muscles fatigue, when we are out running, we experience a decay in our running form. That's just, it's just natural. We are not as sharp uh, when our muscles are in a, um, a good, strong non-fatigued state than they are when we are in a fatigable state. So we can be working on uh, having training a runner to not just strengthen the muscles, but tailor their training programs so that they're not bumping into walls that are leading to further injury. You know, you, you talked earlier about um, uh, that. Uh, the one thing that people can do is to is to uh, you know kind of limit their limit their stride. Are, are there other things that uh, people can do, um, male or female, uh, runner or not, just to to kind of reduce their chances of developing a pelvic floor issues? Are, are there are, are there things that people should do, just kind of as a matter of course, whether or not they consult with a physical therapist? Sure. Um, so specifically pertaining to the pelvic floor and running, um, there's some there's some overall bathroom habits that can be helpful, and those include not straining to urinate or have a bowel movement. So if you get in the bathroom and you're in a hurry constantly and you are pushing down and straining to get all the urine out in 10 seconds flat before you have to get back to life, or if you're experiencing chronic constipation and you are pushing and straining, those habits can lead to uh, a breakdown, a wear and tear, if you will, of the pelvic floor. And that that is going to be noticeable in activities of daily living and in, in running. Overall, a program that includes lateral and rotational hip strengthening. So um, running is a forward activity. You know, we don't get a lot of opportunity for side-to-side movement in traditional kind of long-distance running. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also don't get a lot of opportunity for it in most of our daily lives of sitting and standing and doing regular functional household activities. So being really deliberate to strengthen the muscles on the sides of the hips and the way that they rotate is really important as well to help with those good, strong, stable running gait characteristics and that we talked about not succumbing and crumpling down into gravity when when the foot hits the ground. Do you mean you should try to walk sideways or what? 
you certainly could walk sideways with a band around your ankles. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of commonly referred to as sidestepping with a band, laying on your side and doing clamshells or um, hip abductions is one way to do it. As Weight bearing as much as possible is really important. Mm-hmm. Having strong feet. So um, you can put your feet on a towel and scrunch as if you were making a fist with your foot to help strengthen your foot. There's also a, a great device on the market made by a physical therapist called mobile board that's for specifically strengthening the foot that runners are using a lot these days but having a good strong foot creates kind of that foundation so that when the foot hits the ground whether you're walking or running you have stable footing to then stack on top of again as product of that not succumbing to gravity so but band work is band work and standing and working on being on one foot is really important when you think about running gait you are either standing on one foot or you are in the air. That is right. You are hopping from one foot to the next. And considering that you need to be able to stabilize your your body in the air too. And then compound that if you're a mom pushing a stroller. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I don't want to end this discussion without talking at least a a little bit about uh, pain specifically. Um, In in the past decade or or more, pain science has become a huge area of study uh, in and of itself. And and certainly pain is is going to be a huge issue for individuals who have pelvic floor dysfunction. So Amanda, can you talk just a little bit about what you've learned about the science of pain during the course of your career and and how you apply those lessons to your work and and to the approaches you take with people who have pelvic floor dysfunction? We have learned so much about pain and how people experience it and how we as healthcare providers talk to people about their pain as we learn more about how the brain works and um, how the brain and the body can be working in synchronous fashion and also what happens when there's a breakdown in, in that connection or that communication between the two, you know, something interesting about pelvic pain specifically is um, it can certainly occur due to injury, but a lot of it does occur with trauma and abuse. And that trauma and abuse could be sexual in nature, and it could also be emotional or otherwise. And it can it can result in some clenching behaviors that people are completely unaware of. And so kind of, you know, the same way you can imagine when stress increases or when there's been a traumatic activity and some people kind of scrunch their shoulders up and get tension around their necks and develop headaches. Um, there's actually, it's been coined by a, a physician and a book has been written about it called A Headache in the Pelvis. And that can certainly happen in, in the pelvic floor because they are muscles like everywhere else. And we know that people under duress will often unconsciously clench those muscles as a protective response. And so when we're managing pelvic pain, we're managing not just the symptoms in the body, but we're helping to reframe um, and also identify where inclusion of a, a counselor or a therapist can be beneficial. And it's, it's not to say that it's all in your head because those symptoms are very real. And a lot of times pelvic pain patients have seen anywhere from, I would say, three to 20 different doctors. And they kind of go through this process of what we call diagnosis roulette, where, you know, they get a CAT scan and that looks clean. So I don't know what to tell you. So maybe go see the gastroenterologist. And they're going to go through this process before they come to pelvic PT. And so they've 
kind of been made to feel crazy a little mm-hmm. bit. And so one of the key factors that we, we want them to know is that they are not nuts and we do, we believe them and we know that it's happening, but we're not just going to be fixing the problem in their body. We're going to be working on how they're perceiving their body, how they're managing their stress, helping them to put themselves into situations where they can connect with that area of their body again in a meaningful way so that, you know, I liken it to when, when your brain gives the message, we want the, the pelvic floor to understand it. So if your brain is speaking French and your <laughs> pelvic floor is speaking English, there's an opportunity for miscommunication. And so we have tools like biofeedback and ultrasound imaging where we can show people what this area of their body that maybe they've never seen or didn't know that they have, we can show them how that it functions. And that helps to create a better understanding. And that in turn, improves the coordination coming from their brain. So that's, that's just kind of a, a, a general overview of how it is, but it, it, you know, I, I joke and, and um, there's, there's many um, ways to frame it, but it's just important to recognize that a lot of these people are suffering so much. I've had patients that are suicidal and um, this is really wreaking havoc on their life, but there is hope. These are fixable problems, but it, and it takes time, but it is doable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so let's recap. Uh, you're, you're a physical therapist. You're, you're a running coach. You're, you're somewhat of a psychologist and you're also a linguist <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of uh, translating things. Yes. All of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I think I think that response and this conversation in general has has demonstrated that, uh, that as you say, you have, you have a pretty good sense of humor. So my last question, I wanted to uh, to ask you uh, something that caught my eye on your website was a comment that uh, quote unquote comic relief is among your values, uh, uh, and you not only find uh, uh, humor in most situations, but you also use it readily quote unquote. So <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Amanda, in in your um, area of practice, especially. I can see where well-placed humor could be a real plus. So can you give us an example or two? Do do any particular anecdotes come to mind? Sure. I mean, there's been many funny things that have happened in clinic. And I mean, my personal philosophy, I've seen a lot of hard things. I mean, none of us go through life without experiencing really challenging things. And for me, um, I, I say like good, clean, like 1950s humor is definitely my coping mechanism. <laughs> so I offer that up. And I think too, you know, when, when a patient knows that I'm hearing them and I've demonstrated that I'm, that I'm listening and we're working on forming this therapeutic alliance, um, one of the ways that I, you know, kind of break the ice and let them know it's okay to laugh is I say, you know, I explain that we're going to be doing an internal ex- assessment. I get their permission and I explain to them what's going to happen in that evaluation. And then usually a worried look will come over as they say, yes, I understand. I want to do this. I want to get better. I give my consent. And then I just let them know this is nobody's favorite part of their day. And if it was, I would have to kick them out. <laughs> um, but, I mean, it's just many things. I liken it to um, kind of like Mary Poppins meets Midge Maisel from The Marvelous Mystery. <laughs> 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 that's just how I connect. And I find that once I get my patients laughing, laughing makes people unclench. So if they are nervous and they do have these clenching patterns, they recognize that if they can laugh, that often creates an involuntary drop and relax of their pelvic floor, and that's the first step to healing. <laughs> so, so it serves a practical purpose in addition to a psychological one. You got it. 
Always two birds with one stone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Amanda Olson, uh, thank you so much for joining us in Move Forward Radio. This has been a really informative uh, conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or find previous episodes at ChoosePT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at ChoosePT.com.